and if everybody's nice and quiet and nobody sets anything on fire during the first show, show you another show. Mr. Shepard will be here at the conclusion of the television viewing. Now, we have to set a couple of ground rules, all right? Otherwise, we're all like, we end up in the slam. Like, no jumping up and down and yelling. And please try to keep at least a few aisles clear because of fire regulations. Okay, please? With this TV show, the important thing to remember is it's, it's, it's a show for your head. So I hope you enjoy it. you liked it. This is the first show of a 13-week series, and I think we'll let Gene Shepard tell you about it. So, here he is, Gene. Alright. Uh, uh, I don't know what, I'll put this back over here. I'll put this on. Uh, Alright. Uh, it is a commercial, friend. Uh, now, now, before we... Now, at ease. I'll bust your ass, kid. Before we, before we get underway here, I, I must say that I was out in the back there for a bit and listening to the, you know, to what was going on on the set here. And I, I have to agree with Lee that something happened to this equipment because the sound we paid, in fact, probably the, the sound on the, on the show, as you notice, there's a great deal of color and movement and all. And the sound, I think, is some of the best sound ever recorded on a television show. We spent a lot of time recording the sound, so you get the sound of the mill and all. And I might say one thing. Every show is different from the one before it. And if you know, if you'd like to see another show later, would you like to? Yeah. It's absolutely different in, in, in feeling. Every show is completely different, and and uh, the next one we we have here, if we have time to show it to you, I think you really dig it. Are you enjoying it so far? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now listen. If uh, is there somebody in the back there? Uh, how about giving us a. Uh, Give us some light so we can see. Turn the lights on in here. I mean, no, they aren't. No, no, no. I'm sorry, they're not. Turn the lights on in the room here so we can see. Is this all the light you've got? This one little bulb here? <laughs> My God, it's WOR all over again. We're a one bulb station. All right. Uh, I I, uh, I I I wish now for a while you guys would quit taking pictures and stuff and we could we could uh, carry on with this thing. Now, no, really, put your cameras down for a while and quit popping the bulbs. You know, I know one guy that doesn't even bring a camera; he just brings a thing that pops bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> Loves to have people look at it. <laughs> and how many of you were here at the last year's press conference? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was... You still got your press cards? Well, uh, uh, that, 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 as you can see on, on this one, we, we were much more careful about sending out cards. And if you recall the last time, there were kids climbing on the windows or 68-year-old ladies that came in and said, Where's my press card? I like it. 
the Pitcairn High School Journal. <laughs> we had one hell of a time. Now, here's what I'd like to do, since this is, you know, supposed to be a press conference, and, and uh, you know, it's very official. Uh, I'll give you a brief idea of what, what, you know, what the show is. I think, I think, did you enjoy the show, first of all? Yes. Well, I don't, I, I suspect, uh, for one thing, the show is extremely personal, as you can tell. And, and every, every place we went, we, we, we tried to get on film uh, and on tape. This was tape. We tried to get things that were more emotional and subjective. In other words, how the hell does it feel to be in Hawaii rather than uh, what do the surfers look like? So we shot stuff in Hawaii. We were up in Alaska. Uh, we shot things in an Eskimo village inside the Arctic Circle. Uh, we came back and did a, did a thing on the Great Plains in Montana. And it's, in fact, one of our best shows, I think, is The Mystique of Beer. <laughs> the Beer Mystique. And you know, you know what? The Beer Mystique involves everything from Tom Seaver, where would he be without Rheingold, <laughs> to, uh, to almost the whole ramifications of our time. So, each show is different from the one before. That has to be remembered. In other words, the Steel show is one show, and the next show is so different that it's, it's like another experience. In fact, I've felt for a long time that television is format, being drowned by formats. And so one Johnny Carson show looks almost exactly like the one before. Eternally, you go through time with Zsa Zsa Gabor sitting over there. And you can see the sparkly curtain. And eternally, there's, there's the, the sound of Victor Borga off stage. It's as if nothing ever changes on television. Certainly the format doesn't. Now, I don't know quite how to do this. The last time we had people hand in questions when they came in. And I would like to have any of you who have a question, a legitimate question, I don't want any speeches, I want a question about anything. My radio work, my stuff I do for Playboy, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. <laughs> How many of you can forget that? Oh, God Almighty. <laughs> uh, by the way, for those of you who are curious, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memory is part of a novel, which is actually it's a collection of short stories, which is coming out in April or August. Double day. It's called a Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters. <laughs> and I think you'll recognize it. All right, here's what I want to do. Don't don't feel constrained to, you know, that you have to ask questions about TV. Any anything that you, you dig. Now as you can tell, uh, a lot of work went in on the television show. I mean these these shows are, are take six or seven months, each one of them, to create. It's a lot of work. And if you've got any questions about them, if you've got any questions about Playboy, what Hefner's really like, uh, <laughs> if you, whatever you'd like to ask, raise your hand, and, and when, when I point to you, stand up and say your question out loud so everybody can hear it. So raise your hands, all of you that got questions. All right, the kid all the way in the back of the room by the wall. Why did you choose this as your first show? 
Well, what's that? Yes. Well, I'll tell you why, with the thinking going behind it, because when you when you read Gene Shepard's America, I guess most people would assume it's a travelogue. They would think it's like Charles Corral visits uh, Pitcairn, Pennsylvania, <laughs> which is the most dull, boring kind of crap I can think of. But Gene Shepard's America is a show that deals not with American cities or places, but with experiences. And I wanted to right away make it clear so that anybody who watches the first show that it is not going to be a travelogue. There's not going to be a scene of me sitting there, and over to our left is the Rocky Mountain Range. And over there is where the old lady's home is. You know, the usual stuff. And now we'll interview a colorful citizen of Pitcairn, Pennsylvania. Uh, the show is an ex show, an ex and certainly working in a steel mill, and I worked in one at 17, just about the age all you kids are. When I was in high school, I got a job there in the, in the summertime. You heard me talking about it. Is, an, is really distinctly an American experience. Very few kids anywhere else in the world work in a steel mill at 17. And uh, that's why I chose that show. I wanted to make sure everyone recognized from the start it was not a travelogue. Now, however, the next show is extremely, it's a completely different feeling. The next show is, is shot in Maine. It's about Maine and the whole mystique of Maine. If you've ever been to inland Maine on the Kennebec River in fall, you know that it's a whole new world. It has nothing to do with, uh, say, Flatbush Avenue. I mean, it's, it's about 20 million light years removed from Fordham Road. And one of the things that we wanted to do on the television show was to show things which are never seen on television, experiences in life. Uh, sure, the TV, uh, the the, the steel mill is occasionally shown as a problem, or here is the mill. But actually, I don't think anybody's ever touched on how it feels to actually work in a steel mill. Most of you kids come from the eastern seaboard, and you don't know yet. You, you hear these terms, hard hat, you know, they're used so glibly. And actually, very few of you would even be aware of what it's like, let's say, to work on the assembly line at, let's say, the Ford plant what it really feels like, what the guy thinks about, how he feels. And you will agree that you probably saw a side of the, t of the steel mill that you've never seen in your life. Do you agree with that? Yes. Well, that's, after all, it is educational television, and I feel that educational TV should educate. It shouldn't lecture, it should educate. So that's why we picked that show. Does that answer your question? Uh, now, the other shows will deal with other places, like we go to Maui, for example. One of the most beautiful shows, I think, absolutely a beautiful show, is a show of a guy, me in this case, but he, it's just a guy, getting into a houseboat and traveling through the Everglades to an uninhabited island, and no words are spoken on the show. And you see nothing but... Uh, we shot it in the Everglades. You see nothing but pelicans and, and herons flying over. And finally he gets to this uninhabited island in the Gulf and he, 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 the first time he says something to you, he looks to the camera and says, well, I found it. So long. And he disappears into the undergrowth. It's a beautiful show. In short, it gives you an idea how it feels to live in the, in the, in the area of the, uh, the Everglades and the Gulf and so on. 
so that's one show. Yes. Uh, now let's let's pick a few others. How about the kid in the sweater standing up there with the blue shirt? Yeah. Yeah, the work shirt. Yeah. I've got talent. <laughs> I mean, you ask a question, you probably got an answer, kid. <laughs> yeah, over there, by the by the window. Yeah. What do I think of hot? Oh man. <laughs> the hotter the better. <laughs> I'm waiting for girls to wear jock straps on the street. <laughs> oh. I ain't got nothing against them. <laughs> nothing like riding on the subway, you know, and seeing nothing but groovy scenery. All right. <laughs> Uh, how do you feel about him? <laughs> yeah. You dig it, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, how about, uh, let's see, how about the guy over by the wall there? Yeah. Have you ever spoken or gotten in touch with any of your old friends like Cleb or Schwartz? I wouldn't go near them bastards. <laughs> no, no, I, I must tell you, as a, as a, as a writer, now, now the man make a point here, there was a flick and there was a boner. And there is a Schwartz and so on. But remember that I'm a writer, and I work on the air as a writer, that these people are really composites. It's like asking Bill Cosby, you ever get in touch with Fat Albert? You know? Well, actually, Fat Albert is a figment of, of, he's based on fact, but he's also based on, on imagination. Don't they ever uh, say, hey, there's Gene Shepard, I grew up with him. No. No, because the names... Uh, to begin with, Schwartz was killed in the Korean War. Uh, if you read my book, In God We Trust, if you remember the last page, the guy says, it's too bad Schwartz couldn't be here. Do you remember that? Well, all right. But the point is that, that, that they were real people, but yes and no. I mean, after all, when, when a writer, it's like, it's like uh, when Philip Roth is writing this Portnoy, for example. Is he writing about a real guy? Is he writing about himself? Yes, I think so. I think he's writing about a lot of things. But you wouldn't think of going up to, to uh, let's say, to Melville and say, hey, do you ever run into Ahab these days? <laughs> well, <laughs> there was an Ahab probably. He, he poured all those things. And you know the interesting thing about it? May I say this? Wait, hold your hands down for a minute. That the more realistically you write, in other words, where people really believe in the characters, the more they refuse to accept that it's fiction. They begin to believe that this is not fiction writing. In fact, most critics in New York who read my work and see me, they really don't think Shepard deals in fiction. They think he deals in reminiscence. Well, my God, that's like thinking that, that all Norman Mailer wrote when he wrote, let's say, uh, uh, The Naked and the Dead, all he was writing was his memories of the war. You know, Not so. He put them into a fictional form. And, and I think... Did you ever read Catcher in the Rye? Yeah. Well, now, most people believe, you know, that, that, that they, they all, have you noticed all kids who read it identify with Holden Caulfield? They never identify with the fat kid with pimples in the shower. <laughs> Even if there are fat kids with pimples and they're reading the book in a shower, you know, they don't identify. <laughs> Which means, you see, that, 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 that the better, I think, the more the more completely your style is integrated into the speech of your time, the more people tend to think that it's a guy just reminiscing. It's not really writing. Well, my work is fiction. In fact, my next piece in Playboy is about a boys' camp. Did you ever go to camp, any of you guys? Well, it's about a boys' camp 
called Camp Nabawawanaki. <laughs> and it's about the great war between the chipmunks and the beavers. <laughs> you all were in camp. You know how they named the houses, the, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, beaver camp, the beaver lodge and all that? Well, it's about a kid that lived in Mole Lodge. And, and uh, it's, it's a real camp. I went to camp when I was a kid, but it's a, a composite of all things where in the, the ultimate moment they take this kid and they stick him down the hole in an outdoor job, which actually happened in the camp I was in. Terrible moment of truth. I'm sure the kid never outlived it, you know. <laughs> Saw the world from another side in time. <laughs> All right, now, wait, now wait. Is there a girl in the crowd who has a question? Yeah, all right, baby. <laughs> you sure did, baby. I'm waiting again. She says, I kissed you last year. Do I remember, honey? I, 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 for, for hours afterwards, I was walking in circles. <laughs> yeah, I remember it. You want to try it again this year? Don't tell us she gave her name out over the air. Come on up. <laughs> see why showbiz is groovy, gang. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. No, wait. All right, everybody ready now. Okay, so Frank, you're going to take your picture this year. Okay. Oh, man. The kid here next to me says, you smug bastard. <laughs> I mean, he's the Marty of Plainfield High. You know, he hasn't had a date in eight years. All right, Eddie's. Eddie's. Now let's go on. That was great. Thank you. Uh, yes, in the white shirt. Uh, stand up so they can hear you in the back. Fame and fortune. <laughs> no, actually, what I hope to accomplish, now that's the kind of question that's almost impossible to answer because when you do something, you know, it would be easy to come out with a glib answer. Well, I hope to give people a deeper insight into the world they live in, which is pure bullshit. <laughs> no, I don't have any feeling about what you hope to accomplish. I hope people enjoy it. I hope they get something out of it. I hope the people who watch it get one-tenth as much fun out of watching it as we did out of doing it. Uh, when I, 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 you know, I think today almost everybody uh, has, e almost everybody in the medium, whatever medium you're in, television, radio, writing, are cursed with the Messiah complex. Everybody feels he has a fantastic message that will change the lives of all the other less fortunate. <laughs> and I, I say, well, I have yet to be convinced by anybody who's come on in a movie that I should change my way of life and thinking. I can't hear you. Stand up. Yes. Well, I'm I'm going to say this to you. That's that's a theoretical and a, and and in many ways a a, uh, a question that doesn't really bear on what we did because I don't think what I did could have been done on a commercial television network, not with the kind of free swinging 
easygoing, and it's not that it's controversial. You know, your entire form can be controversial. It's not what you say that's controversial. In fact, you can get on the Johnny Carson show and say the most outrageous, quote, revolutionary statements, and that's not controversial. Form is controversial. So if I suggest to a network I want to do a show where I just go and shoot what I want to shoot and do things about my own thoughts, they'd say, are you out of your mind? I'd say, come on, who the hell are you? Now, if, if you're Bertrand Russell, they may let you do it early Sunday morning, once. But in this case, I think that public television recognizes that TV as a form itself should be explored. New ways of doing things. Not just whether or not I'm you know, making a pro-revolutionary, anti-revolutionary statement, which is not controversial. To me, those are just common statements that have been made for years. So, I think also, the, 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 when you say the big networks, I say the big networks are only big now. I think that within a few years, and it's already happening, there's great numbers of people are going away from the 28th rerun of I Love Lucy. I mean, there are so many people that are no longer saying, well, I can hardly wait to see what Johnny Carson says to Zsa Zsa Gabor tonight. And, and so they're drifting over, and you see the great success of shows like Sesame Street, uh, shows like even like Julia Child, which is very unusual. You ever see Julia Child? She always looks like she's about three-quarters drunk. <laughs> she's like, oh, I'm going to hit this fish here now. <laughs> And it's great to watch her, you know. She's a female W.C. Fields. <laughs> well, they never put her on network TV because she's not pretty enough. So they go and they get the galloping Guatemala who speaks in an English accent. And, and, and I say to you that by 1975, that will be, I think, the big network. And you notice they put my show on at 8 p.m. Sunday, which is prime time. Now, that would never happen on, on CBS or NBC. I don't care what I'm competing with. They're competing with me. I think the FBI is in trouble. I mean, I have the ego of an artist, and I should have. Yes. In the yellow shirt. What do you think of the comic book scene today? They're more relevant. They can have the story really. Well, the comic book scene is deep thinking for the illiterate. Uh, I doubt very much you say more relevant, but that's because you're not used to any other medium. I doubt whether you've read a novel in five years. Uh, and and to, me, to me, all the stuff that comic books are saying is the same stuff I've been seeing on subway walls for years, which is my medium, really. <laughs> I'm not putting down the comic book scene, but, you know, uh, they're, they're very predictable. The day, that, the day that a comic book turns out... See, I think when you talk about predictability, I think that every comic book today recognizes that most kids believe that relevance means anti-whatever is going on. That's relevant. Well, <laughs> that's an interesting feeling. You can become relevant very easily then. Just be against what's happening. And they, so, and, and they feel it. And if you really believe it's that simple, then you're truly a comic book mind. Okay, I'm sure you don't, and, I, and that's why I'm saying it to you, if I, if I didn't think you could understand it. But I think the comic books are just one other medium, and by the way, if you recall, I wrote for Mad Magazine at one point. So you'll find me, 
You'll find me in the catalog of the best of Mad. So I've dealt, I've been part of that scene. I was in the Mad magazine. And you know that I've done stuff for National Lampoon. Have you seen that? So don't think I'm putting it down. I'm saying, though, that every medium has its validity in certain areas. There's not one that's better than others. They're all different. In the back there, yes. Have I heard of what the hell was all that? Sounds like a cure for acne. No, I'm not a rock fan. I know. No, I'm doing my own thing. I'm sure that the Beatles or the Stones don't sit around and listen to Shepard. Huh? Oh, I don't know, but is it heard in New York? Well, I haven't heard it. Yeah, by the way, I don't do much listening. <laughs> no, so don't think I'm out of it because I don't listen to the station. I'm merely saying that when I, it's it's like believing that ball. Wait, hold your hands up for a minute. It's like believing that ball players are always sitting in ball in, in stadiums watching other guys play ball. In other words, the difference between a performer and a listener is a great difference. In other words, a performer is usually working very hard on his work. He doesn't spend his time when he's not working sitting there listening to more of it. You follow what I'm saying there? So you're a listener, and so you assume that what I do is sit and listen like you do. But that's, I, I, after all, you know, it takes, do you know that it takes up to 10 hours to prepare my nightly show on WOR? So I'm not going to be sitting around listening to a high school radio station. With kids saying, well, what I think they ought to do to J. Edgar Hoover is <laughs> <laughs> relevant, you know. <laughs> yes, the girl over here. You had your very own copy of our school newspaper, the Parker Towel. What did you do with it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are women and children here. I... <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I, I've never seen the Partridge Owl. It's the Park Ridge Owl. The Park Ridge Owl. Thank you very much. I'd hold it up. That's what I'd do with it. <laughs> well, I'll read it when I get back to the office. All right, now, at ease now. I want questions, not... not the, the gentleman in the rear there, yes. All the way by the door. Oh, uh, well, may I say that almost every performer who gets dropped claims he's been censored. Because this is the easiest way. Now, I'm being very, very realistic. Remember, I'm a professional. And don't assume that what Shep... Now, wait, don't stop laughing and listen. Don't assume that everybody who says things for public consumption is saying the truth, merely because you happen to like it. You just accept that statement without even questioning. He was censored, that's why he was dropped. It could very well be, and this is quite often the case within the industry, it could very well be that he was not drawing a sizable audience. It was, might have been a tiny audience. Furthermore, uh, it could very well be that he was late a great deal of the time. I knew one performer who was actually dropped, a famous performer who was dropped, because the performer continually either didn't show up for shows or when he did show up, he was drunk. <laughs> Simple as that. And, and, and he was not... No, it was not John Gandhi. <laughs> no, I'm talking... Typical Jersey wit at its best. <laughs> and it's, it's pristine wit. But I'm trying to I make a serious statement here. And, you know, I could be very easy. I could get very a lot of 
a lot of popularity with all of you to go on and immediately say, yeah, he was censored, those rotten guys. Uh, but it's not that simple. And that, that, that in our industry, and I'm talking about as a performer, it is a recognized fact that most people believe that there is an I, or there is a they that censors everybody on the air. That's a fact. We all believe this as much as we believe the earth is round. So the minute I'm dropped, it's a humiliating experience to be dropped. You've never heard a, a, a performer say, well, I was dropped because I was drunk all the time. Uh, yeah. Or do you hear one say, well, I was dropped because my uh, rating was just a little bit below the Passaic police calls. <laughs> no. He says, oh, they censored me. I had, if I had been allowed to say the beautiful things I wanted to say, and, you know, immediately thousands of people are in his corner, whether they've ever heard him or not, <laughs> which is fascinating. Uh, that's happened on television. Now, I'm not saying, now you ask me if I've ever been censored. No. I have never honestly been censored. No one's ever told me, no, no, I was not fired at WR because of censorship. No. Not censored at any point. Don't tell me what happened to me, kid. It was on tape, yes. I was not censored. I cut it out myself. Censorship is not a matter of, of uh, is not a matter of, in fact, most censorship is highly overrated. But I feel that, that uh, being censored is, is a thing that most people today exaggerate, like we exaggerate everything else in our time. I mean, we're, we're, we're living in the age of complete exaggeration. I mean, really, I mean, every movie that comes along you hear the announcers say, once in a generation man is privileged to see another great epic of his time. Christ. Two weeks later, you can't remember it. And I'm just saying here that, that, that maybe Mr. Bennett was censored. I don't know. I'm saying, though, that I've heard that story said over and over again. I remember the Smothers Brothers. You know that when the Smothers Brothers were being taken off, they, they had dropped from first to something like 49th in the ratings. You notice they didn't complain of censorship the first year they were on when they were number one? Yeah. Huh? What happened? Well, they just suddenly start censoring? No. Uh, that, 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 uh, I think that often the word censorship is used. Maybe a guy can't face it himself. Very few people can face being dropped. Ron Swoboda will not admit that he was dropped because he was a 210 hitter. He always now he's claiming that Tom Seaver was after him. <laughs> How's that for paranoia? <laughs> How about the kid in the back there? Yes, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was the character. If you remember on the road, there was a guy they were listening to all the time on the radio, and they keep referring to, for, referring to him as the angel-headed hippie. Do you recall the character? Okay. Well, I knew Kerouac, and yeah, that's me, for what good it is. <laughs> uh, I should have thought reading the novel, you would have seen right away. You see, in those days, I was on all night. I was on from midnight to five on WOR. Uh, and I'd just come from the Midwest. Over there by the wall, yes. <laughs> well, for one thing, you probably get the wildest company in the world when you sit on the subway. Uh, 
It's not the cheapness, no, not at all. I can afford cabs, but what, what I dig in the subway is, for one thing, they're a hell of a lot quicker generally in New York. In other words, if you spend much time in Manhattan, you realize to get by cab from, say, 40th Street, where WOR is right down here, to 14th Street often takes you hours. You walk out, you get in the subway, and zap, you're there in five minutes. Do you live in Manhattan? Well, then, if you lived in Manhattan, you'd realize the truth of what I'm saying, that the subway system is infinitely faster than cabs. If you're interested in really getting where you want to go, you take the subway. Uh, if you're, you know, a lady type and you like to ride cabs, you take a cab. Yes, uh, the pink shirt here. No, 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 the guy here in front of you. you, you we'll get to you later, yes. Yes. What time do you think your show should be on? We carry it on an FM college station, Lowell, Massachusetts, and we're having a debate, so what time should it go on? That's a good question. <laughs> I, I kind of think that my show, the, the, the attitude of my show, is better in the evening and late, because at the time I'm on, it requires people to sort of give, you know, of their imagination, just let it go. It's very hard to do that at 2 in the afternoon when you've got all kinds of things coming up later and you're thinking of, you know, at 6 o'clock I've got to go in for this thing and all that. I would say about 10, 10.30 is the best time for my show. Uh, your other, the other part of your question is, uh, what was that? Uh, I think you... Do you try to have just a few commercials? Oh, do I try to have just a few commercials? Well, yes, actually. In fact, WOR has in my contract that I have the right to refuse or accept commercials. And I have that absolute total right. Before a commercial goes on, they ask me whether I want it or not. And they're not at that hour they're not interested in, you know, in, in having a lot of commercials. It's 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 you know, it's there, but uh, they're not they're not making an issue of it. And I do have the right to drop or accept commercials. Um I'm surprised nobody's asking me anything about the Playboy or the TV show or anything else. Yeah. Uh, uh, how about uh, over over by the fireplace? Uh, when you in When was I? I was never at Camp Crowder. No. I was in several camps, but I was never at Crowder. Actually, I don't know where that rumor got out. Your dad, probably. <laughs> Every place I go, there's a guy who says, Well, I know him in Pitcairn, Pennsylvania. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. Where, where's? How about the kid way in the corner over there with a groovy hat? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned sort of, uh, what you see as the cultural maze now. I can't hear you. you got to really build it up. I have? Yeah. I can't really hear you well. You say, what's the closest in Europe or what? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be funny. I just can't hear you. You say, I've mentioned the cultural, a cultural malaise. That exists today. Yes, go on. I suppose, no, I never said that. No, I think there's always been to the intellectual, and he's generally wrong, unfortunately, about this, a cultural malaise. In other words, no matter what time in history, everybody believes who's an intellectual that they're living in the worst time in the world. <laughs> Just a fact. 
Well, uh, there was different things going on in the village. In, when I well, I live in the village now. By the way, I live on Tenth Street, so it's not that I've left the village. Uh, so I know the village quite well, and, and I just say the thing has changed. What has changed is that Cosmopolitan has made it popular. In other words, it's a very hip thing now for all kids to come and be in the village. Now, that's a sad mistake on their part. They think if they go to the village, they will become talented, or they will become hip, or they will become with it, and, and, and the poor idiots wander around, you know, with their mouths hanging open. They would be much better off standing in front of the Dairy Queen in Pitcairn, Idaho. But the village now has become a kind of a catch place for all the people who, who feel they're, they're looking for an identification, in other words. They, 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 have, they do it with their clothes. They figure if they wear groovy clothes, they've they better become hip. If they go to the right place, they'll, they'll, they'll do it. And, and the village is just a piece of real estate. And you walk around the village, and I, and I think some of the saddest sights in America are seen walking up and down McDougal Street. who really believe they're with it, you know. You can see the glazed eye of a guy who really should be on Fordham Road. And that's where he... Uh, all right, now wait. Uh, any girls here again? Girls have been very quiet. Yes, over here. I'm always talking about Syrian Dagwood, she says, yes. I always do that. I talk all the time about Syrian Dagwood. <laughs> I did once, yes. Syrian Dagwoods are a total obscenity. As I said on my show, they're much faster than x legs Much more thorough. Uh, the, Sir, the, the Syrian Dagwood is a very hot meatball sandwich that is of Syrian origin, which is particularly made in Maine. You find Syrian Dagwoods in places like uh, Waterville, Maine. And you have to drink a lot of beer to counteract them. Uh, now, how about how about in the front here? We'll let a couple of you guys get in. Yeah, okay. Stand up so they can hear you. If you think you do have talent, you know, and your brother-in-law doesn't He says, if you think you do have talent, why don't you say it so they can hear it? If your brother-in-law isn't the editor of Playboy or something like that, yes. how do you get into uh, the writing field? You feel that my brother-in-law is the editor of Playboy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have talent. No. The only, the, the only thing... Uh, sit down, kid. You, you shot me. <laughs> See, every kid feels that he's got the real talent, and all the others that are doing it have a little facility. But, uh, uh, the only way you can, can find out if you have talent is to do what you think you've got talent in. If you think you're a writer, you better start writing, kid. How about if you already have written Well, if they've sent it back, you better reevaluate whether or not you have talent. Where are you sending it to? Well, you, you, you submit it to various editors, just like all of us do. Uh, I did it, uh, Philip Roth did it, Norman Mailer did it. When you write, you send in your, your manuscript uh, to the fiction editor of whatever magazine that you're going to try to write for, and either they accept it or they don't. They do not accept it because they're your friends. <laughs> do you rewrite pieces for people? Do I rewrite yeah. from what? Pieces for people. No, I do not rewrite pieces for people. He thinks he's got talent. He wants me to rewrite a piece for him. <laughs> Uh, you, you, you laid it out there for real that time, kid. <laughs> no, I do not. Yes, over there. I'm, I'm from the uh, part which I have a great deal of people who got 
<laughs> the Parkridge Owl, you'd like to know what? Huh? You believe in God. Do I believe in God? Now there's a question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's no way to answer that. You know, that people have been ans- asking that question uh, for 20,000 years. Now, come on, let me, let me, let me finish this. It's a serious question. And I'm saying that, that people alternately believe in something and they alternately disbelieve in something depending on what's happening to them in their life. In short, I, I, I could say to you that, that if all of a sudden the guy runs out of a, an alley and he starts shooting at you, you suddenly begin to at least hope there's something. <laughs> and I'm trying to say to you that a belief in God is not as clean cut as a belief that let's say today is Thursday or tomorrow is Friday. It's not as clean cut with me and I don't think it's ever been with anybody. Some of the great literature has been written on that theme so to ask me if I believe in God that's impossible to answer. Do you? Well, you know, sort of. Well, that's what I said. Okay. Sort of. <laughs> that's the problem. You know, the Pope is going through that, too. I mean, this is a, all men do. <laughs> oh, over there, yes. Am I eternal? A turtle? Yes, I am. I have just received. I'm sorry. Am I a turtle? You bet your goddamn ass I am. I. Okay. <laughs> All right. See, that's a secret society of total slobs, <laughs> of which I'm a member. Hey, wait a minute. Before we go any further, are you guys enjoying this? Yeah. All right. And by the way, I'd like to point out, wait, may I make one thing, you know, that, that you guys may not, maybe you're aware of it, but a lot of people in the other mediums are not. For example, people who, who are, you know, I'm talking about really serious adult types in radio stations and in magazines, really seriously believe that the only thing anybody under 20 is interested in is rock. Now, I'm not saying that most people under 20 aren't, but what they're really saying is that they would never listen to anybody talk. Which is quite obviously not true. In other words, you, you're interested in many things. And I, and, I, and I just say that that's one of the strange things that's happened in our time. Everybody says, if it ain't rock, it ain't, you know, the kids ain't with it, you know, forget it. Paul Krasner does not play a guitar. And yet you all dig it. Yeah, how about the guy with the hat? Let's get him. He's a real exhibitionist. Yes. <laughs> What's that? How did I get started? Well, do you want to really know, or do you want me to make a funny about it? Well, here's what, how I got started. I'll tell you, it was funny. Uh, well, I don't think. Now, I'm going to say something here that, that a lot of guys in my industry would, would get bugged at. If you notice that every time you hear an actor or an actress or a writer on any of the shows talk about how they got started, you'd believe that it was like they got the call, priesthood. At the age of two, they were doing Hamlet. Well, I've never found this true in real life, and I think most people's careers, even though they may seem to you to be very exotic careers, generally sort of happen to them. And in my case, I was a high school football player. I was, I was a, a defensive back on, on a high school football team. And now listen, you want to hear how I got started? You'll hear it. And I was playing... 
And, I, and at the same time, I, I had an amateur radio station on the hand. And that became known in school, and they wrote about it in the school paper. And one day, in, in my junior year, as a football player, I got a call. A guy came to see me, and he was from, uh, actually, he was from the local radio station. Who, he was the, a faculty member of my high school, and he said, we have a high school radio show that goes on every Saturday from 10 until noon, 10 a.m. till noon. And part of that radio show is a, is a sportscast about what happened, you know, last night. We had played all Friday night football games, what happened last night in the various games. And he said, would you like to do it? Since you have a ham station, you probably know how to, you know, deal with the microphone and so on. So I started to do it, and I had a tremendous amount of fun out of it. You know, the day after the game, I would come in and give scores and all that. And then uh, a few months went by, and the, the uh, program director of the station asked me if I would like to have my own show. And here I was, you know, 16, I had my own radio show on a commercial radio station. It was a fantastic thrill. And after that, I became an actor. I went into acting, and I did a lot of teenage acting on various shows, like on Jack Armstrong and stuff like that. And uh, actually, I started as an actor more than anything else. Does that answer your question? Okay. So it was an accident. I did not have a dream at the age of five that I was going to go on the radio. And, and by the way, I was never a radio listener during my, during my teenage life. I think there's two kinds of kids. I think there's the kid that sits in front of the TV set, or he reads incessantly, or he, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's always a watcher. Then there's the other kid that's the doer. While one kid is sitting there in front of the set watching, there's another kid out playing second base. And I happen to be the second baseman. I was not a watcher. I never listened to the radio hardly at all. Uh, yes, here. Have I ever been a victim of crime living in the village? Well, that in itself is, in a way, being a victim of crime. <laughs> However, I have to say, yes, I had an automobile stolen. Uh, I've had my apartment robbed twice in New York. Uh, yes, I think anybody who's lived in this town at any length of time has had something happen to him. And I've, I've, yes, I have been a victim of crime. Indeed. What kind of car? Uh, at that time, it was a Mustang Fastback. Luckily, they didn't steal my Morgan Plus Four, which they didn't know how to turn on even. Yes, in the pink shirt over there. You said that you had any trouble with W O R. What about the ninth, August sixteenth, nineteen fifty-six? Where were you? I did not. I did not say that. I didn't say I didn't have any trouble. I said I was never censored. Now, be honest what I said. No. Uh, when I was let go at WOR, I was let go because they had planned to put an all-night WPAT music show on in place of it, just segued music. And that was at the time when WPAT and, you know, all that Montevani-type stuff was real big, and they, they wanted to take me off, and it was a tremendous uproar about it. But it had nothing to do with censorship. I don't care what the New York Times said. They were wrong. I was not censored. I did not give a commercial that was not on the law. This was later written up, but it was not true. Yes? Well, because they had to bring somebody in, and John was at the station at that time. Well, because I had been ordered that night to play nothing but music. They were converting it to music, and I didn't.
And so finally they said, okay, that's it, friend. But it was nothing to do with censorship. Now, I'm not trying to cover up for a while. I'm trying to make the record straight that there is a belief today that there's always an evil they looking over everybody saying, now look, you're going to write this, you're not going to write that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've never really found it. Yes, over here, over in the corner. Come on, stand up, you, you with the blue shirt. Yes. Yeah. No, I. Those are all my voices. I. I nobody calls up. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, may I say that, that he asked a question. He says once in a while I ask a question on the air that's a rhetorical question, and I say somebody call in and give this answer. Yes, they do. As a matter of fact, that's the one thing that I have trouble with at WR because what happens? We've only got one woman on the switchboard at 10 o'clock at night, and when you get 700 calls, she flips, especially since she's always watching TV down there. Uh, and that's the actual truth. Yes, they do call in. Those are not fake calls at all. Uh, over here in the brown shirt. Since you're running for Playboy now, how do you feel about the quote-unquote Playboy philosophy? Well, I've been writing for Playboy now for five years, so... Uh, as far as I'm concerned, Playboy is a magazine. Now, you know what a magazine means. The word magazine really means a gathering of many viewpoints. It is a magazine, which means that I think this is to, to, to Playboy's credit, that they don't have to dig a guy's philosophy to print him if they think he has something to say. And conversely, if you don't believe in the Playboy philosophy, that does not stop you from writing in short, uh, I, I think the Playboy philosophy, as a matter of fact, around the magazine, it's called Hef's Coloring Book. Around the magazine, it's not taken very seriously, but it is among readers. And uh, I don't, in fact, I never even read it. I find it so crashingly dull that I just don't read it. Does that answer your question? What's that? It's about as new as Noah's clay. What? Okay. <laughs> That's a secret Syrian password. Uh, over here. Uh, I, I understand you majored in psychology in college. Am I correct in assuming that? Yes. Do you consider yourself to be a scenarian? <laughs> I consider myself to be Shepherd, <laughs> and in fact, that's why I found I found psychology a little disturbing because you have to fall into a category. You have to believe a whole system of beliefs. You, in a sense, you've even said it. It's like, do you believe in God? And the guy says, Yeah. Well, all right. Do you consider yourself a Methodist, a Protestant? Are you a? In other words. The dogmatic feeling within very every school of these things bothered me completely because I didn't I didn't buy it. I, I thought some people were right in certain areas and some were wrong. I consider myself a pragmatist, <laughs> and 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 I think that Mr. Freud, who lived in the 19th century, by the way, are you listening? I think that Mr. Freud, for example, and most of the seminal people who deal in psychology were late 19th century, early 20th century, I think they couldn't conceivably have understood some of the traumatic experiences that you and I feel. For example, I think one of the great traumatic experiences in every guy's life, especially if he's a male and he's 16, is he buys this used car he's been dreaming about for years, and he goes out and buys it, 
and ten minutes later discovers that it's got a balsa wood transmission. <laughs> well, Freud wouldn't have known about that. And you'll remember that car all of your life. You may not remember the first girl you knew. Uh, now, how about somebody in the back? The girl. All the kids. I, I can't hear you, honey. The hat on the poster. That's a good question. That represents... It, it runs through many of the shows. In fact... If you guys are willing to sit by and see the next show, would you like to see the next yeah. show? Well, you'll see that hat. That hat is a theme that runs through many of the shows. Not all of them, but many. And it's a sort of a, an identifying characteristic. You see what I mean? It's there. Uh, did you like the poster? No. You didn't, all right. Wait, you sent for What about the people that... Well... You know how much that poster cost, Brenda, to print? $1.63 each. That's just to print it. And now, oh, wait a minute, put your hands down. He brought up a point. That that, that, that that poster, when we, that was not, by the way, to be, uh, that poster was not for the public. That poster was to be distributed to, come on, sit down, you're, you're disturbing everybody. That poster was be, to be distributed to the various television stations that were carrying the show. It was not as a souvenir for you. Now, what, now let me finish. When it came out, the thing cost around $1.63 to produce. That, we didn't realize it would cost that much. It did. If you've ever had any of that type of printing done, you'll know we're not kidding on that kind of stock. Well, a lot of people saw it. Uh, who were around Boston who happened to see the thing put up and they said, geez, they'd love to have one. So we got the idea of making them available to people. Well, if we charged you what that poster actually cost us to mail and to print, it would be around $350, $4. But what do you charge? I can only say I'm sorry, honey. If you, if you expected something that lit up in the dark and had gold tassels on it for a buck, you're just way out of it. <laughs> Now, I did say we were going to send it to mailing tool, and you know why we, why we couldn't do that? We discovered that the quantity of letters, we expected about 1,500 answers. In other words, do you know what, there, what work there is rolling up a poster and putting it into a mailing tube and mailing it out is like? We thought we'd get about 1,500 replies. As of this afternoon, we have received just a little over 8,000. There was no way to do it. We were just inundated. So we either had to say, all right, we'll send your dollar back, forget it, friend, or send it out the best way we could. Yes? Um, Does that answer your question? Yeah. And even at that, we lose, the station, WGBH, loses roughly a dollar and a quarter on every one they mail to you. Who pays for it? WGBH does. We yes. From Jersey and we're from Lakeland. And um, was the Martha Dean show a preview of uh, the show? No. Was Martha Dean's show a no, preview of the... Show, uh, when you did the thing about Maui? No. No, I, she was... Uh, he asked me, was the, the show I did on the Martha Dean show, she had me as a guest talking about Maui, was that a, was that a preview of the, of the show? No. No, not really. Because, you know, when you're dealing with a visual image and all, you can't really put it in the words. How could I tell you what the steel mill was like better than those pictures? I mean, did you see that? Like, by the way, did you did you see that fantastic shot of the 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 uh, that that strange face in the open hearth? 
That's a mess. No, it is not. As a matter of fact, the the this this thing. See, here's here's the smart ass here. There's always one who can primarily and sits down and, by the way, makes a total ass of himself. No, it was not a mask. As a matter of fact, the the uh, this open hearth creature. To my knowledge, has never been filmed, and, and as all steel workers all over the world are familiar with that phenomenon. It's a, it's a, this, this strange uh, character that comes out of the dark in the open hearth. I thought was one of the most dramatic things I've ever seen on TV as part of the world. Did you, did you ever see anything quite like it? And that's absolutely authentic. And, and, and every time out of the dark, when that thing would come, when they tap the heat, man, it's something else. And uh, yes. Standing there, I'll have to get rid of you. You're, you're just causing trouble all around you. Go ahead. What type of media do I think I'm best at? Well, I'm best in the bathtub with a, with this fantastic rubber duck I've got. Uh, no, I don't. I don't make any. To me, media are all the same. I don't find one better than the other. Now, you probably like me better on radio. That's because you're more familiar with me on radio. We, we, we tend to, to drift towards the familiar all the time. And uh, many people, many people will say that my best medium is on the stage in a college. In fact, I've had a lot of people say, I couldn't stand your radio show, and I came to see you at Princeton, and man, it was unbelievable, or something like that. So if you, if you only know a guy in one medium, and that's another problem we have today, that everybody's segmented. We don't really believe if a guy does radio, he can conceivably do television well. And if he does television, he certainly can't be a stage actor. And uh, this is a profound belief on the part of critics and others, and I say it's totally missing the point of an artist. It's like saying that, saying that, uh, that, that uh, simply because uh, Picasso does oils, he can't conceivably ever do ceramics. And in that field, they don't have the kind of hang-ups that we have in the media. Yes, the girl over there. Could you give us some examples of, of uh, traditional slob art and talk about <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would, but, you know, that's you're asking me to start to kind of do a show here, and I... Additional... Well, I think I give a lot of it uh, on the show, you know? Well, now, one of the great examples of slob art has been several of the questions today. <laughs> I mean, this is, this, is, this is called subconscious, I'm a smart-ass type of slob art. You know, the critic goes, hey, Shepard, if your brother ain't the editor of Playboy, how do you get in? Oh, he's been working all week on that ad lib, you know? That's slob art. He's, he's growing up in the footsteps of his old man. Who, you know, hangs, hangs out in the subway and says, oh, for Christ's sake, the president is an idiot. All he has to do is wow, you know. The instant solving of all problems. And the complete belief in your your total ignorance. Uh, anybody in the back? Because all you guys have been getting getting called on in the front here. How about the kid in the yellow jacket? No, I didn't. I was out of town most of the time. I have not had a chance to go to the auto show. I'm sorry. Well, I just didn't have a chance. The auto show didn't come and see me either. I mean, I got my own show to work on. <laughs> you know, that's another thing that, that I must point out. You know, when you're do hold your hand down for a minute. When you're doing, you must stop and think for a minute. I'm doing a, a nightly radio show, which takes me five to ten hours to create before I can do it. We've been working on a television show for a year now, and I mean, I'm going to Boston tomorrow to film more of it. 
I've just finished a short story for Playboy, which took me four months to write, and you expect me to go and look at the new Mustang. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that, that you just can't do it all, you know? Although I do enjoy the automobile show. You do too, don't you? Uh, how about way in the back? Yeah. I can't hear you. I, well, who are you speaking for? I become more disenchanted with it? No, I, I haven't, no. I mean, you're, you're putting words into my mouth. If I were disenchanted with it, I would... What the hell? I... <laughs> No, I, I enjoy radio, as a matter of fact. I think radio is a damn good medium, and I don't think many people have used it well. I think most people think of it as a place where you play records, and I think that's really selling it down the, down the road. Yes, the girl here. What was that? She says, how long will your series of columns be running in Car and Driver? Are you a Car and Driver reader? Thank you. Do you like the magazine? It's a very interesting magazine, isn't it? Well, I, I, uh, I'm a regular columnist for Car and Driver, and as long as I have the time to do it, I'll do it. Uh, right now, my contract holds uh, with them. It will be uh, really a total of a year, which means I have another six or seven columns to go but I they asked me if I want to you know do it regularly and I I don't know it depends on time do you enjoy the columns would I take another kiss yes later but in the uh, other room we'll, uh, <laughs> 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 yes, sir